There we go. Okay. All right. Well, good morning. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. That's where we'll be at this morning. Matthew chapter 17. I think one of the uh, most important questions that you or I could answer is this. What is the central message of Christianity? What is the central message of Christianity? Has somebody ever asked you that question before? I've often encountered people who thought that the central message of Christianity was be a good person or, or that the goal of Christianity was to be the best version of yourself. Now, if you, if you listen to uh, country singer Alan Jackson's song, Where I Come From, well, you might think that the answer is working hard to get to heaven. If you watch Veggie Tales, you might think that the central message of Christianity is God made you special and he loves you very much. But none of these things reflect the central message of Christianity. Now, I love Alan Jackson, but he's not a good theologian. Now, if someone were to ask you what the central message of Christianity was, what would you say? Just think about that for a minute. Maybe even write it down on your bulletin. What would you say? A man named Jay Gresham Machen, who during the 20th century took a stand for the truth of God's word, uh, he, he points us in the right direction when he says that Christianity begins with a triumphant indicative. Christianity announces first a gracious act of God. Now, for, for those of you that uh, maybe you're a couple decades out from English class. An indicative is a statement of what has happened. It's a statement of fact, of reality. Versus a statement of imperative, which says you do this, 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 this. Christianity begins with a triumphant indicative, a triumphant statement about something that God has done. Christianity is not first and foremost about you and me doing this or that or becoming this or that. It is about what God has done. In our text this morning, uh, simply two verses, we see the central message of Christianity laid forth by Jesus Christ as he reveals the central work of his earthly mission, a work that is for us and for our salvation, but a work that is ultimately on his shoulders. A work that is good news, the gospel. Let's read our text, verses 22 and 23. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Would you ask for God's blessing upon his word with me? Our Lord and our God, everything in your word has been given to us for our life, for our godliness, for our understanding of who you are. Lord, every single word on the page is there by your providence and your inspiration. We thank you, Lord, that you have given your word to us to hear it, to receive it, to read it, and by your grace and help to understand it and to do it. And Lord, this morning as we come to these two verses, as we come to this simple text, 
I ask, O Lord, that you would, by your Spirit, bless the preaching of your Word. And that as we hear about what Jesus Christ came to do, that you would deepen our love for him. That you would increase our gratitude for what he was willing to go through for us. And that we would walk out today loving our Savior and trusting him even more. And that you would be glorified in this, Father. Help me, Lord, as, as a simple messenger to proclaim your word faithfully and accurately, Lord, knowing that it is not me or anyone else that makes your word effective. It is you. It is your spirit. And so please, O oh Lord, bless your word to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if we back up a little bit all the way to Matthew chapter 16, Jesus and his disciples have, have traveled from Caesarea Philippi, the city north of Galilee, uh, and they've arrived back down south here in Galilee, in that region, as we see in verse 22. Now, Galilee is going to be the setting for the rest of chapter 17 and chapter 18. Um, and really, this marks the beginning of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. This is what is going on. This is why Jesus is traveling south from Caesarea Philippi to Galilee, and he'll go from there down to Jericho and then eventually end up in Jerusalem. And they're going there to celebrate the Passover. The Passover. And in and, and Matthew's narrative, the, 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 the story itself is going to start focusing more and more and more on this upcoming event. And so as the disciples gather in Galilee, as they all come back together, uh, Jesus tells them what's going to happen to him when they get to Jerusalem. This is what's down the road. This is what the final mission is. Uh, he's, he's spoken similar words to them in Matthew 16, 21. And if you recall that that elicited Peter's rebuke. Far be it from you, Jesus. You'll never go to the cross. You'll never, you'll never suffer those things. Uh, but here, we don't see the disciples rebuking Jesus, of course. And we also see that Jesus has not changed his mind. He hasn't changed his mission. He is still committed to do that which he spoke of before. And these two verses, though they are short, they reveal the central message of Christianity. Jesus identifies three things that await him in Jerusalem. And as we look at these three things today, what, what we're going to do is we're going to look at how the Old Testament points forward. And we're going to be in Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. You can, you can kind of put your thumbs there. We're going to be flipping to those passages a lot. We're going to look at how the Old Testament points forward to these three things. And we're going to see how these three things reveal certain things about us and about God. And the three things we see are the Son of Man in the hands of men, which reveals sin. We'll see the Son of Man in the grip of death, which is the atonement for sin, and the Son of Man in the triumph of life, in which we have the defeat of sin. Now, now these things that Jesus lays out in our text this morning, these are the things that the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 labels as things of first importance. Things of first importance. Here's what he says in verses 3 and 5 of that chapter. For I delivered to you as of first importance, priority number one, chief concern, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That's what the Apostle Paul 
in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, identified as the things of first importance for you and me to know. This is the central message of Christianity. What Jesus Christ has done. That's what's of first importance. And so these things we see Jesus lay out in Matthew 17 today are the very foundation of our faith. They're the very foundation of our faith. They are the simplest answer to the question, what's the central message of Christianity? And they are the basis for how we live the Christian life. Let's look at the first thing that we see. The Son of Man in the hands of men, verse 22. The Son of Man, Jesus says, is about to be delivered into the hands of men. This is the first thing Jesus says will happen to him. This really is the marker that signifies his work really is coming to a culmination. When he is delivered into the hands of men. This is probably only a few weeks away in the timeline of Matthew's Gospel. It's not that far. It's coming close. Now this word delivered here means being handed over, being given into the care of another, and it can also have the sense of betrayal. It can have a sense of betrayal. Uh, Jesus, of course, we know would be later betrayed by Judas Iscariot on the night of the Passover and handed into the care, so to speak, of the religious leaders. He'd be given over into the hands of the crowds. Jesus would be given over into the hands of Pontius Pilate. And they would have authority over the Son of Man. They would be given authority over the Son of Man to do with as they pleased. Now when we think of the religious leaders and the crowds and Pilate, we realize that it would not be into the hands of good and fair, just, righteous men that Jesus would be given over into. And what good and just man would arrest, beat, mock, and ultimately crucify the perfect Son of God? No, it would be sinful and wicked men that the Son of Man would be delivered into. And none of this was unforeseen. This wasn't even something that Jesus became aware of in his childhood or something like that. No, this was something that the Old Testament spoke of centuries prior to Christ. It was prophesied. We look at Psalm 22. Turn there with me if you would. Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a psalm that when we read it in its entirety, it becomes very clear it is speaking of what will happen to Christ. And when we look at verses 6 and 8 of this psalm, we see how Jesus would be treated in the hands of sinful men. This is originally written by David, but it's prophetic, speaking of Christ. And so when we read these words, really we are reading the words of Christ. But I am a worm, verse 6, and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Now David, speaking prophetically, describes how Christ would be despised. How he would be mocked. How those who were given authority over him would be cruel and vicious. 
And that quotation we, we see there in verse 8 is actually spoken to Christ during his crucifixion. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Now, the prophet Isaiah also speaks of uh, this betrayal and, and handing over of Christ in Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, turn over there with me. Isaiah 53. We read in verse 3, for example, that the servant of the Lord would be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and is one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. We look down at verse 7. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Isaiah speaks of Christ's deliverance, betrayal, and torture at the hands of sinful men. And Jesus knew all of this. He had read the scriptures. He knew what was coming. He knew that he was not going to Jerusalem to be celebrated by the people, but to be mocked beaten, spat upon. Jesus' deliverance is also foreshadowed in the Old Testament by what we call types. Now, a type is a character that points forward to an ultimate character, an ultimate fulfillment. We see many figures betrayed and delivered into the hands of wicked people in the Old Testament. Think of Joseph. Joseph delivered and betrayed by his brothers into the hands of slave traders. Think of Samson, who was delivered over into the hands of the Philistines, who tortured him. Jeremiah was betrayed by those who were close to him and arrested by the leaders of Jerusalem and unjustly thrown in a pit and nearly executed. All these and more point forward to the fulfillment of Christ's own deliverance and betrayal. And when we think of this, what does it reveal? What does it reveal? It's not just a part of the story. It's not just a a moment in the plot. The deliverance and betrayal of Jesus Christ reveals man's sinfulness. It reveals man's sinfulness. Now consider the way that mankind treated Jesus. Think about what's happening when he is betrayed and handed over. He's given over first to the high priest and the Jewish nation represented by them. Where does he go from there? To Pontius Pilate, to the Romans. And Jew and Gentile both deal unjustly and cruelly with Jesus. All humanity is represented there. And friends, apart from God's grace, you and I would do the same to him. Apart from God's grace, you and I would be there in the crowd screaming, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. The heart of man is not changed in 2,000 years. You and I are just as sinful as the people who were gathered there at the foot of the cross screaming at him. And, And how Jesus was treated reveals our ultimate problem, which is sin. 
It is sin. It's rebellion against God. It is hatred of what's right. It is a, a complete aversion to that which is good as God defines it. And we, we know and love John 3.16, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. But John goes on to say that the light has come into the world and that because men love darkness more than light, they run away and they hate the light. You and I would be there in that crowd screaming, Crucify Him apart from the grace of God. And friend, this reveals your ultimate problem and my ultimate problem, which is not our imperfections or our weaknesses or our mistakes or our habits, hurts, and hang-ups. Those things are not what separate us from a holy God and make us, in our natural state, despise Him. It is our sinfulness that does so. It is our sin and our sinfulness that separates us from a good and righteous, holy God. And we must understand that. We must understand that. Because if we don't, we identify the wrong problem and chase the wrong solutions. We must realize, friends, our ultimate problem is our sin. And that sin must be dealt with. It must be dealt with. And yet we cannot deal with it. We cannot do enough good works to balance out the scales. We cannot do enough right to remove the guilt of our wrongs. And we cannot change our own hearts from sinfulness to righteousness. God is the only one who can do that. God is the only one who can deal with our sin and God is the only one that can change you and, and I. And we'll see how in a few moments. But the deliverance of Jesus and the way he is treated at the hands of Jew and Gentile reveals the universal and ultimate problem of man's sinfulness. Friend, do you feel yourself to be a sinner? Do you recognize that that is your ultimate problem? That it's not what other people have done to you, that it's not things that have happened in your life, that your ultimate problem, as hard as those things may be, is within you. Until you realize that, if you do not realize that today, then you will not see your need for the solution God himself has provided. And Jesus' betrayal and deliverance not only reveals our sinfulness, but it also reveals and accomplishes God's eternal purposes. Now yes, we know Judas was the one responsible for betraying Jesus, that the high priests and Pilate were the ones responsible for flogging him and crucifying him. But we must also realize that this betrayal, his deliverance into the hands of sinful men, was actually part of a much greater divine plan. That as that is happening in the Garden of Gethsemane, in, in, in the chambers of the high priest's house, in Pontius Pilate's court, that as those things are going on, the Father is not biting his fingernails wondering how he's going to get Jesus out of it. That's not what's happening. Jesus' betrayal and, and deliverance was actually part of a much greater divine plan in which the Father hands his son over to wicked men, and the son willingly gives himself up to them. It was not an accident. It was not a fluke that Jesus was betrayed and delivered into their hands. It was the divine purpose of God. The apostles, after the fact, knew this very well. 
Peter preaching to the Jewish people in Acts chapter 2, he, he, he proclaims that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You really can't get much clearer than that. The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And, and in Acts chapter 4, as the church prays, they acknowledge that in Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Ultimately, it is God that gives up his own son into the hands of sinful men. We read that this morning in Romans 8. If God gave up his own son, but why would God do this? Why would the Father do this? Well, it's important to remember that God is not the author of sin, nor can he commit any evil or injustice, right? It's impossible for God to do that which is evil, right? There are things God cannot do, and sin is one of them. We know that Jesus, according to the scriptures, is perfect and sinless. He's a perfect man without sin. Can the law condemn a person who has kept it perfectly? No. No. Our condemnation comes from breaking the law, but Jesus never broke a single commandment of God. So in himself, he could not be rightfully, justly killed and punished by God because he was perfect. He was sinless. No, instead, God hands Jesus over to sinful and wicked men who in their hatred would put him to death. And in the moment of his death, as Jesus is on the cross, that's when God the Father places our sins upon his shoulders. That's when our sin is imputed to Jesus Christ. In other words, God uses the hateful malice of sinful men to bring about the death of Jesus. This is what the London Baptist Confession calls secondary causes. God can use sinful acts of people to accomplish his righteous purposes without bearing any of the guilt or blame of sin. And so the deliverance of the Son of Man reveals our sinfulness, and yet it reveals that God can and does use sinful people and horrible events for his greater and good purpose. The, the, the betrayal and the death of the Son of Man was the greatest evil that ever occurred in history. Everybody else who has ever died in, in the world's history was justly condemned by their sin. Jesus, not so. The high priests, Pilate had no right to crucify him. That is the greatest injustice, the greatest evil that has ever occurred, and yet God according to his definite plan and foreknowledge, brought forth the greatest good that the world has ever known as well. How great God is that even man's evil is turned around in his hands for good. And it would not be the betrayal of Jesus that would be the worst thing that happened. We look at verse 23. Son of man in the grip of death, sin atoned for. Jesus tells the disciples that once he's betrayed and delivered into the hands of these, these men, that they will kill him. That they will kill him. 
that he would be unjustly tried and murdered, sentenced to die a criminal's death on a cross. Uh, some people today may, may not realize uh, the, the crucifix was the most brutal method of Roman execution, and it was reserved for the worst criminals. And that is how Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the King of Israel, would be killed. Now, this was not the fate that the disciples expected for the Son of Man, the Messiah, but it was the necessary one according to the redemptive plan of God. And, and, and just like his betrayal, Jesus' death fulfills Scripture. It was prophesied in the same passages. We look at Psalm 22. Verses 16 through 18, we read, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. And look what David says next, or what Christ says next, They have pierced my hands and feet. That is extremely specific, isn't it? They have pierced my hands and feet. And of course, as Jesus is crucified, His hands are pierced and His feet are pierced upon the cross. And we read on, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots, which is exactly what the Roman soldiers did as Christ prepared to die. And Jesus even quotes verse 1 of Psalm 22 as he is hanging there on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Isaiah 53 Speaks of Jesus' death too. Verse 5, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. Jesus' death was explicitly foretold. Even, even the method of hinted at. And his death was foreshadowed in the Old Testament as well, again, through types. What's the holiday Jesus and his disciples were going to celebrate? Passover. Passover. This was the Jewish religious holiday that celebrated God's rescue of the people of Israel from bondage in Egypt. And it celebrated the Exodus. And as part of the Passover, the people were to raise a lamb, even letting it dwell in their homes, caring for it. And then on the night of the Passover, here is what they were to do, Exodus 12. You shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. This was on the night of the 10th plague when the destroying angel came through Egypt and came through the land killing the firstborn. And the people would raise up this lamb. And in, in the first night of the Passover, they killed it. They spread blood over the doorpost that the wrath of God and the tenth plague would pass by. The life of this lamb was given in exchange for the life of the firstborn son of that home. It's interesting because uh, we, we, we think of John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And 
Really, Passover is the main place where a lamb is killed. Now, beyond the Passover, God gave Israel a sacrificial system. We see that in, in, in Leviticus primarily. Uh, that's based on the sacrifice of various animals in place of the sinner. The life of the animal was given to spare the life of the sinner. The, and, the, and the greatest sacrifice of all was the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, it happened once a year, and the, the high priest would lay his hand on the head of a goat and, and symbolically impute all of their guilt, all of their sin, upon this goat as a substitute. And, and this goat would be released into the wilderness to die. He would bear the sins of the people and die in their place. And so we see the death of Christ foreshadowed in the Old Testament. And, and, and the problem was these animal sacrifices were not sufficient to fully cover a person. They could make you ritually pure so that you could go to worship God. But they could not atone for sin. They could not remove the guilt of sin. They provided a temporary and, and, and partial covering. But they did not provide full forgiveness. They could not satisfy the demands of God's justice. Only a human life could do this. And that is what Jesus does. Jesus, like all these Old Testament shadows and types, takes your and my place on the cross. Why is this death necessary? Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin are death. What you and I earn, what we, what we deserve for our sin is nothing less than death. And not just physical death, but eternal spiritual death. That's what we would receive if God were to be just towards you or towards me. And apart from Christ, that is the price you will have to pay your own life. Yet God accepts a substitute, just like we saw in the Old Testament. He accepts a substitute for your and my sin, Jesus. Jesus, his son. This is what we call the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. Okay, three big words that have one simple meaning. Penal means regarding the punishment for our law breaking. Substitutionary meaning Jesus dies in our place as a substitute. Willingly taking on the wrath and judgment and punishment of God that you and I have earned. He says, I will go in their place. I will go in your place. And atonement, meaning that Jesus' death satisfies completely past, present, and future, the demands of God's righteous law. That Jesus giving up his own life pays the penalty that you and I would be forced to pay. Penal substitutionary atonement. When we put all this together, we realize that Jesus died for our sins. That he took the penalty and punishment that we deserve, friends. In order that no more guilt and condemnation would remain. He takes it all. Every sin. Even the ones that, that you're too ashamed to, to even confess to God. Even the ones that you feel might keep you from His grace. Every sin. 
He is the one that deals with our ultimate problem. Willing to give up and suffer beyond imagination because of his love for us. And his death reveals that. It reveals both God's justice and his love. His friends, sin must be punished. It can't just be put off. It can't just be erased and forgotten about. It cannot simply be taken off the divine scales of justice. It must be punished. It must be punished. And, and yet at the same time, God is merciful to sinners. He is merciful to us. And he provides forgiveness to us. Jesus bears the weight of divine justice for our sins so that justice is indeed done. And God is truly just. And yet God is merciful to sinners. He shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he provides a perfect Savior for us. And atones for our sins through faith. God doesn't just forget about sins without justice, nor does he refuse to pardon our sins either. This is a perfect plan of redemption. It shows God's wisdom. That he is both just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is what our sin requires. Death, it will either be yours. If you do not have faith in Christ and reject him, then God will demand the price of your life. But through faith in Christ Jesus, that price is paid. And you are covered by his death. You are spared and forgiven and reconciled to the Father. Friend, do you have faith in Jesus Christ? Do you trust him? Do you cling to him and say, Lord, I need what you provide? This is the solution that God has provided. And if you do not see yourself as a sinner, you will not see your need for this Savior. And yet there is no greater Savior that God has given you and me than Christ Jesus, His Son. But, but think about it for a moment. If all Jesus came to do was die, would that be good news? If Jesus stayed in the grave, would that be good news? If he could not overcome the fatal sting of sin and, and the hold of death that he endured as a substitute for us, would there be hope? No, there must be something more that happens after his death. And we see this in point three. The Son of Man and the triumph of life, sin defeated. Sin defeated. The third thing Jesus tells his disciples that will happen to him is that he will be raised on the third day. He will be raised on the third day. Now, as we've gone through Matthew, I've had uh, people ask me a couple times why it says Jesus will be raised on the third day. Uh, does this mean that he's not raising himself? And, and that's a good question. Why is this in the passive voice? Why is Jesus being raised rather than raising himself? Does, does that mean Jesus doesn't raise himself? Well, it doesn't mean that. Elsewhere in the scriptures, we see Jesus does raise himself from the dead. And in John 2.19, Jesus speaks of his body and says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. So, yes, Jesus does raise himself. But at the same time, 
in Romans 1.4, the Spirit is described as raising Jesus. How Jesus is declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. And the Father is probably most commonly credited with raising Jesus from the dead here and in other places. So when we look at all of Scripture, we see that the whole Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit are all involved in the resurrection. But Jesus often speaks of it in a passive way to emphasize that as the Messiah, as a human, he is fully entrusting himself into the hands of the Father. Father, I trust you to raise me from the dead after I die. And this too fulfills Scripture. We look back at Isaiah 53, verses 10 and 11. And we read, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Now, now notice how there's this, um, there's this language here in these verses about how he's crushed, and he's put to grief, he makes an offering, yet he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So after this death and this offering comes what? Triumph, victory, blessing. We see the same thing in verse 10. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. That's what comes after the death, after the anguish. This is not language of being abandoned to death, abandoned to the grave, but delivered and raised up in triumph. Psalm 16 also speaks of this. In fact, at Pentecost, the apostle Peter actually quotes Psalm 16 as evidence for the resurrection. Here's, here's what he, he quotes from Psalm 16. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, to the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. And, and, and Peter says, think about this for a second, Jewish people. David's still dead and buried. He's still in the grave. He has been in a way of speaking, right, corrupted. His body's rotted. It's just a skeleton in his tomb. So this can't ultimately be about David. It has to be about Christ. Christ who was raised from the dead, who was not abandoned to the grave, who did not see corruption, right? His body didn't decay. There wasn't enough time. But he took it back up in new life, and the Father crowned him with glory and life and honor. Psalm 16 speaks of Jesus' resurrection. And it's foreshadowed in the Old Testament too. Uh, we, we think of Abraham and Isaac. Uh, God says to Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your only son. Put him to death. But as the author of Hebrews tells us, Abraham considered that God was able to even raise him from the dead. Which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. We see resurrection foreshadowed there with Abraham and Isaac. Think of Jonah. Uh, Jesus has referenced this several times. Who was buried in the belly of the great fish for three days, and yet God delivered him. This is a, a foreshadowing of the resurrection. And, and through the resurrection of Jesus, hope comes. If Jesus died for our sins and stayed dead, what assurance would you and I have that our sins were actually forgiven? Or that Jesus himself was a sinless Savior? If Jesus just stayed in the grave, how would we know that he was 
not just like you and me with grandiose claims. We would have no assurance of that. We'd have no assurance that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. We wouldn't. But through the resurrection, we have God the Father's stamp of approval. He says, I accept this. I apply it. The work is done. We don't have to give it the stamp of approval. God already has. What a wonderful thing to have confidence that God the Father has said, yes, even though what Jesus says may seem too good to be true, it is true. I validated it. It is legitimate. I've raised him from the dead. There is forgiveness of sins in none other than Jesus Christ alone. That's what the resurrection tells us, and we can have hope and rest in that. Why do you not have to work your way into heaven? Because the resurrection proves Jesus has done the work for you. Amen. We can have confidence in that, brothers and sisters. And we can have confidence that when God says, I give eternal life to those who trust in my son, that we actually have it. Uh, through the resurrection, Jesus overcomes once and for all the curse of death that has afflicted his people since the Garden of Eden. Since history's beginning, Jesus reverses that. And in his human nature, Jesus is given eternal life. And then guess what? He says to his people, come share in this with me. John 10, 28, I give my sheep eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Is there a more secure place to be than that, friends, than in the hand of Christ Jesus, the triumphant king? We receive the, the first stage of this in the renewal and regeneration of our souls. When we're born again, united with Christ, we, we get this down payment, the Bible calls it, a guarantee. It's like the first installment of the eternal life that we will receive in the final resurrection of our bodies. When Jesus himself returns and we are made like him. And the resurrection reveals the final purpose of God. The end of history. It reveals that the, the will of God shall be accomplished, that God will restore all things without sin and death. That's what the resurrection promises to you, friend. That God will restore all things without the sin and the death and the suffering and the sorrows that afflict us here. Listen to what John sees in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven for God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Right? We are the bride of Christ, the church. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's the resurrection promise for those who trust in Christ. That is what the resurrection guarantees to you. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, friend, will you be there on that last day? Do you trust him? Not as a supplemental savior, but as a completely sufficient standalone savior. Do you trust Jesus Christ? That in his crucifixion, he paid for your sins, and in his resurrection, he gives you new life. Now, it's hard to imagine why the disciples, at the end of verse 23, and we're, we're nearly done. 
But it's hard to imagine why they would be greatly distressed in one sense. Of course, they're no longer protesting. They're no longer trying to change Jesus' mind, so they're making progress. Um, but they're having difficulty seeing the good in what Jesus tells them here. Right? They're, they're hearing he's going to be handed over to sinful men. He's going to be killed. And that's probably where they stop listening. Right? Uh, Mark and Luke actually tell us that they don't even understand quite what raised on the third day means. Right? So they hear these bad things and then this thing they don't understand and they're, they're distressed. But as we see by their later writings, they certainly grow in their understanding of what Jesus did, don't they? And their writings, as the Spirit carries them along, become encouragements and scripture to us. And after seeing God's redemption play out, after seeing Jesus rise from the dead, their sorrow turned to joy. And these two verses, brothers and sisters, simple and plain in what they contain, they lay out before us the profound hope of humanity. That though we are sinful, God has provided an incomparable and sufficient Savior who has died to atone for our sin and who has been raised from the dead in triumphant victory over sin and its fatal curse. This isn't a fairy tale. This isn't a myth. This is reality, friends. This is reality. And this is the central message of Christianity. That we are sinners, that Jesus died for our sins, and that he rose again from the dead. That's, that's the core message there. What Jesus has done for sinners. A message that is so simple in some respects and yet so unfathomably profound and filled with hope, life, and joy. And I pray that you find hope, life, and joy in the gospel of Jesus Christ today. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, there is none like you. There is no one so wise as you are, Lord, as to be both just and merciful. There is no one so generous as you, Lord, as to give up your own Son to lavish your grace upon undeserving, wretched sinners like us, Lord. And there is no one so loving as you, O oh God, that you would give up your own Son, Lord Jesus, that you would lay down your own life and suffer unimaginable horror to say from the cross to those who screamed and beat you, Father, forgive them. Oh, Lord, I, I, I am so thankful that you do not turn aside any who come to you seeking mercy. That whoever comes to Christ Jesus, you will never cast out. And Lord, I pray that if there are any who are here today who do not hope in Christ Jesus completely, that they would do so today. And Lord, that as we hear this central message as we are reminded of it yet again. Lord, deepen our love for our Savior. Lord, increase our humility before His greatness. Increase our gratitude for His humility on our behalf. And Lord, give us joy in what Jesus has done. Give us confidence, peace, and assurance 
not in ourselves, but in his work for us. That we would boast in none but him. And that we would cling to none but him. Lord, you are so good to us. Thank you for our perfect Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.